here with Sam Sabori of Intelligentsia Coffee. Sam, welcome. So good to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Good to yeah. see you guys. Likewise, likewise. So uh, Xavier is uh, much more familiar with, with you as a former coworker than I am. So I'd love to hear a bit about you know, who you are, how you got started in coffee. Uh, what, yeah, what's your story? What is my story? That's a great question. Uh, let's see. I got into coffee like many of us at Starbucks. And I uh, kind of just climbed the ranks there. And, you know, I, I lived in Southern Oregon about 10 years ago. And uh, well, actually about 12 years ago. 12 years ago, I started at, at Starbucks. And, uh, and I, I knew there was more to it. You know, I, I remember like tasting or, you know, going through their tasting sheets and stuff and just be like, this all kind of tastes like roast. This all, I don't like, I, I, I guess I kind of see what this Kenyan coffee is supposed to taste like. Mm -hmm. And you know, at the same time, like, you know, I was out of high school and I was, uh, you know, going up to Portland, you know, just going to shows, going to concerts with friends and, you know, you fall into like, oh, what is this Stumptown thing? Eventually, you know, at Starbucks, I got sick of, uh, not sick, but I, I wanted more. I wanted more. And uh, I had a friend who was opening a coffee shop in Ashland, Oregon, and he invited me to come on board. And I worked there for a couple of years. And then again, I wanted more. So I uh, started applying for jobs. And, you know, I met a lot of the Intelli roasters at a Roasters Guild event 10 years ago, 11 years ago. And, uh, and yeah, I, I, re I remember, you know, meeting Gabe, who you guys interviewed a couple of weeks ago and, you know, just hounding him to get a job at Intelli, you know, trying to move to Chicago. And I eventually, you know, the next year he reached out to me about starting in LA and then I climbed the ranks there, moved to Chicago about four years ago, uh, you know, took on QC, you know, became a buyer within those 10 years and, uh, and yeah, now I'm here. I'm, I'm the director of coffee. I'm, I'm still doing, you know, I, I, I still like to be hands-on. So the idea of like, you know, managing your profile all the way down to, you know, running a brew QC or, or just, you know, tables, you know, getting, getting those numbers in. Like I, I, I still mm -hmm. really enjoy doing all those things. So I've been doing that for about 10 years at Intelli. I realized my numbers were jumping around because I'm like, how long has it been, you know? <laughs> But, a long time. Like 10 years at Intelli, a couple of years at Noble, and then a couple of years at Starbucks. So it's probably like 14, 15 years. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So and you you the your first job at Intelli was in the roasting department. Yeah, I got hired as a as a production roaster in LA. Very yeah. cool. Yeah. What was uh, uh so the progression to uh, like, what did it look like there to move from having roasting responsibilities to uh, like, did they, did they slowly start to kind of give you green buying opportunities or was it a job that was like sort of straight into it full time? Uh, you know, I, I, I kind of just, I had the mentality that if I just kept my head down and focused on coffee, that everything else would take care of itself. And mm -hmm. And it kind of did, you know, Jeff Watts, you know, when I started at Intelli, he was in Los Angeles at the time. And, you know, he was kind of a, he 
was and is my mentor, I would say. And uh, he, uh, he helped train me on tasting and sourcing. You know, he, he took me to Guatemala my first couple of times. And uh, yeah, just kind of showing me like, this is what a coffee tree is. This is what parchment looks like. This is what good drawing looks like. This is what bad drawing looks like, you know. And then, wow. you know, you kind of start to dig into the social cues of what it means to be a buyer. You know, the, the, the things that I guess you don't necessarily learn of like, you don't need to take a picture of everything, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Like you can just be present, you know, and yes, and build trust and have a conversation, like those sorts of things. Mm. But uh, yeah, the, what, the, oh, go ahead. Oh, so, sorry. So, so, the, in the, so Guatemala was the first place that you traveled uh it's a coffee producing country yeah 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 at the time until he was starting a uh you know jeff watts had been doing so much of the buying you know gabe did some of the buying uh a few other people had done some buying but jeff was starting to offload some countries because he had been on the road for 10 plus years and mm -hmm. rightfully so he wanted a, a little bit of a break so i took on guatemala for him and i've been doing it for i want to say like eight years now so how often do you get to travel there? Uh, we would go, I would go around two times a year. And that was my last trip, actually. My last trip was to Guatemala. So it's uh, kind of burned in my memory in terms of like what it was like out there. You know? Yeah, I saw you there. That's remember. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We ran into each other. <laughs> we ran into each other. Yeah. My last night. Yeah. I think we because we drank a lot. We don't really remember a whole lot of <laughs> At least I don't, but yeah, that's, but I, I do somewhat remember seeing you and uh, we went out to dinner. Yeah. That's right. That was yeah. awesome. That was a great time. Yeah. And the pandemic hit like literally a week later, it's like everything shut down. Yeah. That was when like grocery stores didn't have food. That was yeah. Oh, man. a wild time. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. Never again, hopefully. Uh, what, what, what was your biggest uh, misconception kind of going into I guess I got a couple. How how much of your your personal focus in coffee? It's been you know, you were you're interested in roasting, and was the uh, the green coffee buying role something that that really was attractive to you from the start, or was it something that uh, sort of was just a natural progression? Uh, yeah, I think every coffee person romanticizes coffee buying yeah, in some way. Definitely, everybody wants to be on the road, not showered, you know, sweaty, mm -hmm. have a stomach flu, like all that. Like yeah, so, for, some reason, for some <laughs> reason, we like romanticize this stuff and it's not fun when that happens. It's really not, you know, mm -hmm. um, I think the biggest mis misconception or the thing that I had to kind of get straight was, I mean, you're out there and there's nothing out there, you know, and the amenities are different, you know, for a couple of days, it's fine. But when you're out there for a while, it can definitely, uh, you need to, you need to approach the job with, with, with a lot of, uh, humility and, and understand that like you're, you're entering somebody's lives, lives, you know, you're entering their lives and, 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 and it's up to you to kind of roll with the punches to, to live how they live during that time. Mm -hmm. And for me, yeah. it, I mean, it's, it's, that was, uh, I mean, I'm, I would not say that uh, I am fluent in Spanish by any means, but I would say I, I'm learning as often as I can and, you know, practicing whenever I can. And 
And, you know, I have calls with coffee producers weekly and it's still like, you know, have to look up a word and trying to figure out how to communicate effectively, but I've come a long way. And and at the same time, like I have a long way to go and uh, they have had a lot of patience with me and, and a lot of, uh, and they've trusted me a lot. And that's, I think the biggest thing is like, there's so much trust involved in buying coffee in this way, Mm -hmm. which I mean, yeah, I mean, companies are there to make a profit, but there's also, this is, you know, their one paycheck a year and they're kind of, it's kind of like, don't fuck this up, you know? And, And for me, that's why I've always been of the mind that I need to go the extra mile in terms of, uh, building a container or making your selections can be very difficult if you're tasting 20 lots from the same farm, you know, and, and what's the difference between, you know, the first picking from the same plot versus the second. And are those okay to be bulked? Are they not? You know, they're they're questions that like, I never had the answers to, and we Mm -hmm. had to kind of start to take these risks and understand them on our own. And, it's been a fun journey. That's been a fun understanding of, you know, the land in that way of, you know, these, the producers we work with. Uh, but it's it, that, that to me has been the challenge of like tasting. One of the many challenges is tasting those lot, those day lots time after time and making sure like, is this, is it okay to bulk these or not? Mm-hmm. What, what kind of, uh, is it, I'd love to hear a little bit more about that process. Like what's the, uh, is, is there a certain quality spec that you look to hit on, on certain days or is there uh, well, and maybe for, for anybody who might be listening, that's, that's not familiar. So with the day lot, you're, you're describing a process of a farmer keeping uh, the picking from each day separate yeah. until you're able to taste it and evaluate the quality. So maybe if there's some days that are, uh, better than others, you have an opportunity to to really select a very uh, unique lots from from just a specific farm. Uh, how how much of that do you get to do? Is that something that you do with all the producers that you buy from? Yeah, you know, I, I don't I don't try to force anything on anybody, but I do mm-hmm. say like if you want to see your coffee's maximum potential, send me everything. Let's be as granular as possible. But if if uh, if not, I mean. at the end of the day, it's always a conversation of like, how much can you sell? How much do you feel comfortable selling? And then let's start, let's start from there and then we can work backwards. Uh, I definitely think, you know, with direct trade, it's a two-way street. It's, it's a, it's an understanding that, you know, it takes two to tango and, and we got to definitely discuss price quality, expectation of lot size. And the fact that all those things can change mid harvest, you know, if say, you know, they don't get any rain, you know, the farmers get any rain. So you see the first half of the harvest is great, but then the second half, you know, there's, there's no rain for those copies, you know, to really metabolize or to, or to ripen the, ripen the fruit. So, mm-hmm. so the second half of that whole harvest is going to be completely different than the first half. So kind of keeping your finger on the pulse, having those calls with those producers and just constantly checking in to say like, is, how are you doing? Is it cool? Is how are the weather conditions? Do you have enough labor? Uh, 
Like, what are your challenges? Uh, and then also, you know, I think Gabe mentioned this, but like, who the fuck are we to come through and say, you need to do this, this, this? Like, it's, yeah. it's from my perspective, it's, we're still a visitor. We're buying your product, but we're a client. You know, mm -hmm. we're a client of the producer. We're not here to mandate anything. So trying to make sure that they understand that it's their product that we're buying. It's not like, it's not some sort of, it's not the other way around. It's mm -hmm. uh, taking a, a couple of steps back, a, a little bit more of a broad picture, just on, on the subject of uh, transparency in the supply chain. You know, this one's directed more towards coffee consumers here. Why is it important to know exactly where your coffee comes from? What value does that bring? I think the value is that it becomes more than a utility, more than like, you know, you know, caffeine, like a caffeine conduit. And it's a lot more pleasurable. I do feel that if you know where something is from, then it's going to be, you have the opportunity to say, oh, I really enjoy Ethiopian coffees. I really enjoy coffees from Guatemala, or I really enjoy a Brazilian coffee, or beyond just like, I like coffee. Because I think at the end of the day, uh, for the consumer, that's something that I think is something that we as an industry can try to come together on is how do we make it easier for the customer to understand what a Costa Rican coffee versus a Mexican coffee tastes like. And it's a very hard conversation because you know it, the coffee is unfinished when we give it to the customer. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's, we don't know what their grinder is. We don't know what their water is. We don't know what their dose. We don't know any of that. So how do we create durable uh, production lots so that when we roast, it's repeatable, but also that, you know, whatever we put on the bag is transparent enough for any type of extraction. And I feel like if we can do that, those customers that, uh, that see coffee as this utility, maybe when they come across our coffees, it's just that small little flicker of hope that they're willing to pay a little bit more. Yeah, that's uh, that's it, that's it for sure. <laughs> what? Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, what? What kind of data? And and this one, you know, selfishly for me, looking up to, you know, and Intelli's got such a a legacy of uh, really establishing this the, the system that is what most of our work is based off of. Uh, what kind of field data do you collect? Um, and is there any particular way that you use that data to kind of uh, educate others uh, to contextualize what's happening at farms? The data we collect, uh, you know, in the end, it's kind of like, what does the producer feel comfortable sharing with us? Mm -hmm. Again, um, there's a producer I work with in uh, Sierra de las Minas in, in Guatemala, and he, he will, he is so organized. He takes his cherry weight. He takes his parchment weight. He uh, sorts out empties. He sorts out you know, pea berries. He sorts out uh, Quakers all before it reaches the mill. And we dig into that stuff 
time after time, you know, year after year, and we say like, well, what part of your farm is doing better? You know, and when I started with him, he was having an issue with these like, uh, like some sort of like a there was an insect that was eating the roots of his coffees, and it was causing the density of his coffees to, I guess, to become less dense rather. Hmm. Uh, and on top of that, he's not in like a super high elevation, so he is dealing with uh, coffee that it needs that density. It needs everything it can to 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 uh, to become more complex, you know, to, to, to slow down that ripening process. And, and through that data and through his, you know, natural farming techniques of like using nematodes to fight, you know, all, you know, this, this invasion of, you know, root eating insects, uh, he, he, uh, he's been able to reverse uh, not the trend of his copy becoming less dense, but he's also like stabilized that and he's doing, then now he's, you know, he's using a, like a compost, he's using a compost tea to, to help fortify the soil. And mm-hmm. through that, he's now, you know, more, more or less, you know, pesticide free and that pesticides and, and then just general farming practices. Those are huge things that I think we as an industry don't talk about, but it's also like, well, are we, but the other side of the coin is we're not eating the fruit. You know, yeah. we're, we're roasting the pit and pouring water on it, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so how sensitive is that? How sensitive is the plant to those pesticides? And of course we would love organic and sustainable farming for everybody. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to, you being in the hot seat, you getting one paycheck a year. That's a completely different conversation. So right. as far as the data we collect and the things we look at, I, you know, it, it's, it's those sorts of things. You know, it, it's, it's having that relationship with the cop, with the copy producer to say, you know, this plot of land got 20 bags this year. What did it get last year or the year before, or what is it going to get this year? What sort of pruning have you done here? Um, what is your fertilization schedule? How many laborers do you have? How many are permanent? How many are not? You know, drying time, fermentation time. What are your thoughts on fermentation? It's very broad, but you can drill down into very specifics. And mm-hmm. of course, you know, we have a we prefer certain types of copies. So they are the the producer is always free to do whatever they want, but if they know we don't like naturals or like really, you know, bubblegum forward naturals, they're probably not going to put that in front of us, but yeah. they also have other clients that may like that. So um, we're open to exploring all those things, but in the end it's, we're trying to gather as much data as possible, but what we do with it is sort of leaning towards how do we make a better, more sustainable uh, product for the producer because at this point you know the coffee buyer's job is to make the producer more sustainable and in some ways that's the other side of that you know yeah we're buying coffee for a company but it should enable the producer to make easier more precise decisions and in the end taking less risk to make their their income more stable i love that uh that perspective on being a green coffee buyer because i yeah i think that is a a super responsible way to look at that role um, you know and that and it's i think important to note that it 
you know, it doesn't have to be that way. Um, and it hasn't for, for most of history, most people that have been going and buying coffee from, uh, uh, well, who knows if we need to, to say most people, but there's been many people that have been participating in a very irresponsible way mm-hmm. in the supply chain. Um, and I, with, you know, intelligentsia, they, they founded the, the, the direct trade model. Uh, so direct trade is now a term that's used throughout the industry. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's a term that I, from what I understand, Intelligentsia has a pretty set, rigorous set of standards that define a direct trade relationship, correct? Yeah, I mean, and in the end, it's like, there are those standards, but in the end, it's like, do we want to work with you long-term? Do you trust us? Do we trust you? And I think that's kind of the, the biggest, uh, mm-hmm. the, the, the biggest question that needs to be answered there. Because, you know, with direct trade, there are ups and downs in every year. But being able to weather that, that storm through that trust, I think, is the is the the strongest question that needs to be answered. What are, what's your perspective on other labels that get used to help market coffee, like uh, bird friendly, fair trade? Um, what else we got out there? There's drawing a blank. Xavier, you got any other labels? Uh, Oots, uh, organic. Uh, what else? Oh, organic. Yeah, yeah, that's a great one. <laughs> Well, yeah, you were just sort of talking about organics with farmers needing to do what they can to, to be productive. But yeah, overall, what, what, what do you have? What, what kind of thoughts do you have on, on certifications? And we can start having a producer go organic. It's a huge risk. And, you know, that producer I was talking to you about using, you know, this compost tea, nematodes, he doesn't want to go organic because it's like if, if I go through all of this effort to be to be organic and then something happens like a rust outbreak or something. I, I, I have to do something to save my farm. Mm-hmm. And on the other side of that, there are the producers that are de facto organic that just, they, de- they can't afford fertilizers. They just have mm-hmm. plants that, you know, they're, they're not in it to like try to get that plus whatever on the, on that organic certification. They just have a, a coffee farm that a small farm that produces a small amount of coffee for them. And that's enough for them. So I think for organic, there are two sides of it. You know, I think the consumer, I think in the end, we need to look at it from the consumer's point of view, which is organic is better for everybody. And, you know, we're seeing a huge trend in organic coffees that we sell just like we continually need, we need more organic coffee every year. And, and if I was uninformed and I didn't understand the dynamics of organic versus conventional, I would definitely be like, yeah, I'm just going to go organic. Mm-hmm. Like, why wouldn't I? Right. Yeah. As far as bird friendly, it's, uh, I don't think, I, I, I know that there are customers that do want, you know, land conservation. Uh, they do want, you know, rainforest lands. They do want to see, you know, land undisturbed, uh, and I mean, I think we all, nobody in coffee is in the industry to, you know, rip down a rainforest to plant a couple of coffee cherries. Like, I don't think anybody wants that. Uh, but what these certifications mean for the producer, um, we generally, if you're, if you're any, if you're certified with any of these, great. 
but we're not asking you to become certified in anything. Because again, it's, we're gonna pay you for the quality of the copy. We're not gonna pay you because you got a certification. And, and for us, that's where it stops. I, I, I don't necessarily think we're gonna, you know, we've had producers go from organic, they've, you know, decided to step out of their organic certification, we still buy from them. It's, it's, mm-hmm. not, a, it's, not, a, it's not an end all. You know, that we're not buying from somebody because of one individual certification. Right. But, it, but you are saying that you, you've seen increased uh, consumer demand for, for organic copies specifically. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I see it with myself also, you know, it's like, yeah. if you're, are you going to buy conventional almonds or organic almonds? Mm-hmm. I mean, of course you're going to buy organic if you can, but like, what does that mean for the conventional producer? Yeah. There's, there's that other side of it. You know, and even you know, organic versus conventional produce. Like, there's a lot to unpack there, and I think it's in the end the customer. Hopefully, the customer can take the time to educate themselves. But we all have busy lives, and I would hope that us as an industry can leave just a small little paper trail or little bite-sized bits to digest uh, what it means to consume mm-hmm. something. I mean, you have to consume it in a dynamic way. It it can't be binary in terms of I only drink organic Ethiopian coffee, you know, because what happens if, you know, like that trade embargo, you know, when we couldn't get Ethiopian coffee like 10, 11 years ago, like what happens then, you know? So that's kind of why we not only focus on direct trade, but that seasonality piece as well. Hmm. Um, Let's see, what's, you you were kind of, you uh, you mentioned it in the last statement about buying coffee for quality, and yeah, you know, we're we're specialty coffee roasters. It's what we're looking for is quality coffee. Uh, a big focus on the the Source Code podcast and the magazine was was talking about price, uh, and ultimately what we're looking for is how do we how do we connect the price that we pay for coffee to the quality of the coffee. Uh, so what are your thoughts on that? How should the price that you pay be tied to the quality? How should the price we pay be tied to the quality? Uh, I think it starts with, you know, just, a, 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 well, it starts like by getting out of the sea market first. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, at the same time, I feel like, you know, this current time in the world for coffee, I mean, the sea market's up almost 60% from last year, you know, so you will see people playing the market always, but uh, how, do, how, do we, how do we do that? I mean, that's a very complex question. You know, I think everybody's trying to do that. Yeah. And I do think it starts with creating, I, I think specialty coffee is, uh, Everybody has, I think everybody in the world now has, not everybody in the world, everybody who drinks coffee regularly uh, can see what, you know, say a dark roasted conventional coffee, meaning sub 80, conventional coffee, non-specialty coffee, that versus say specialty grade, light roasted. Those two concepts are very clear. Mm -hmm. But like, where does that, like when we think of that specialty coffee, you know, I, I kind of think of like an 83 point coffee yeah. and that 83 point coffee doesn't necessarily have 
it it doesn't have a very strong uh, speaking of generalities here, but uh, an eighty three point coffee is very it's very hard to say where it's from. It's very you know you taste something that has you know brown sugar, caramel, apple. What origin am I talking about? It's yeah, it could be most uh, washed blender quality coffees of you know yeah. an acceptable acceptable quality level. Yeah. But then you think about an 86 and, the, you know, there might be a little bit more citrus. There might be, you know, some perception of a, a secondary layer. Mm-hmm. And I think that's as far as the consumer gets, but in the end, there's still like, it's still coffee, you know? And, and I think we've all had the experience of having like a 90 point coffee. You're like, oh shit. Yes. There it is. Finally, you know, and you go to brew it again or something for whatever reason, some of those brewing variables are no longer acting the same or you fucked up or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And then it's gone, you know, and then you're chasing it. And asking a customer to chase something that they don't have a concept for, or have never experienced is, is very difficult. So tying quality, you know, to a fair price, it's, it's kind of, we're dealing with, different ideas of what coffee is, even though uh, it's all coffee. <laughs> and, and at the same time, you know, we talked about the C market a moment ago. You know, there are times when the C market has crossed a dollar multiple times, even in the seventies. You know? And if you, you know, pull up a inflation calculator, a dollar in the seventies was 450 today, probably closer to five now. So imagine spending $5 a pound for conventional, just, just any sort of coffee with no transparency. That yeah. is, that would be mind blowing for the industry, mm-hmm. but you know, that's, that's in another you know, parallel universe where every coffee producer is getting paid something like that, you know, and, and they are empowered. And I think in the yeah. end, uh, I think in the end, it's empowering the producer to create their own market above the sea. You know, it's, producer XYZ's market because, you know, you know, once you deal with direct trade uh, for a while, you deal with a producer for a while, you end up seeing that they're working with other producers or other coffee companies. And at the end, they kind of create their own little micro market. And I think that helps in creating some stability there. But as far as the end consumer, it's creating those, you know, those touchstones for an 86, an 88, a 90, you know, God willing, or, you know, universe willing, 95, you know, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I guess allowing the customer to know, like, why are we presenting this coffee? What is this idea? And you know, we're not just selling coffee to sell coffee. We have to sell it to like present something, you know, it's like menu construction in a way that I don't think that I've been doing a lot of soul searching on of like, what does it mean to put this coffee on a menu? Mm-hmm. What does it mean for the customer if we have two or three copies from the same origin? Or what does it mean if we ha- don't have any naturals? Like, what are we saying as, as, a, as, a, as a coffee company if we're not allowing for certain, certain processing methods or certain origins to be presented on our menu? And I feel like in the end, we are trying to create a holistic perspective for the customer to see what are the other uh, 
the many types of quality from around the world. And we're hoping that that will enable a customer to see that there is a lot of personality in coffee beyond just that, that loose concept of an 83. But again, it ties into like creating lots so durable that they can recreate cafe quality coffee at home. And when we do that, when it becomes easier, I feel like it's, it's a much easier question or it's a much easier uh, vote that the customer can give with their wallet that yes, I'm willing to pay a little bit more for this coffee because I don't know why, but you know, coffee from metric or coffee from intelligentsia is a little bit more consistent and I can be a little loose or I don't need to scale. Yeah. I don't know. I'm saying weird things right now because we're talking to coffee <laughs> professionals and I'm saying, don't use the scale. I'm not saying that, but, but I am saying that I think everybody has somebody in their lives that want that loves coffee, but is never mm -hmm. going to use the scale. So how do right. we get around that? Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. To your point about the 83s, it's uh, I, I think I've been in my own process of kind of soul searching, looking for, it's like, wait, we're in our bubble of specialty coffee, you know, specifically us all working in specialty coffee. It's uh, we're just surrounded by these qualities of coffee at all times. And it's sort of the only thing that I know anymore. And, and it's like, for me to be unimpressed with an 83 point coffee, it's like, what is, what is unimpressive about it? The fact that it tastes like to your point, like brown sugar, almond and apple. It's like, that's, that's really nice. There's nothing, there's nothing really bad about that at all. And it, it should be, and, and then even more so for us knowing the, uh, the labor that's involved in producing a lot of even that quality. It's like, we, it should be something that's celebrated uh, and, and really revered by all of us, uh, ju really just as much as a 90 point coffee, because usually the 83 points are the ones that they're able to provide a whole lot larger volume of. And so I'm, I'm kind of continually thinking like, how do I get myself more excited and more fired up about talking about community lots that are just, you know, going to be really tasty for eight or nine months. And, uh, you know, like that's ultimately what I think a lot of the people like my family that like to drink coffee usually want something more like that than they want if I I'll bring my mom you know like an Ethiopian coffee that I'm really excited about and she wants to like understand what I'm interested in but she doesn't like it not like she likes a really nice washed Peruvian coffee like right <laughs> so I gotta keep reminding myself that yeah I mean it, it you know I remember I was at a wine bar here and that there was a there was a a winemaker there and I asked him like who do you look up to and he's like that guy he pointed to uh this uh he pointed to this producer that I was like oh I, do, I have I don't understand that wine at all like it was just like so he's like it's the texture of this wine that drives me crazy that keeps me up at night and I remember thinking like oh shit like I'm like into this like heady beat yourself over the head with like you know this orange super tannic wines that are just hyper floral and aromatic. And this guy wants like a quiet wine that is like, just has like this elongated profile. Mm -hmm. And to your point about, you know, your mom and, uh, you know, 
trying to present something where they can understand it and enjoy it. I, th I think it's, you know, giving them something just out of reach of understanding, I feel like is, uh, is key. I feel like everybody is, everybody wants that 90 as a, as a, as a copy professional, but you give that to your parents or you give that to somebody who doesn't brew coffee regularly. And it's, it's confusing, you know, cause the, the, it's so cohesive. It's so, it doesn't have that caramel. It doesn't have that chocolate. It just, you know, they're say they're using a blade grinder and they don't have a, a scale. That's going to be one crazy brew, you know, Let's mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, yeah. and, and they're not going to be dialing it in. They're going to be doing it exactly how they did that pre-ground stuff. They got somewhere else that's been sitting in their shelf for months. You know, it's important for us to think about coffee in a way that how do I make it the worst way possible? And then how do I make it better from there? Because I think those, if, if we can pull those outliers in from, you know, those sub 80s, those low coffee extraction numbers closer to where we need to be. I do think that, uh, I, I do think that in the end, more people will get on board because the idea of the coffee is clearer. The idea of the coffee is more transparent and we're not, we don't sound like we're over romanticizing it. I think we all, I, I definitely romanticize coffee. I definitely am like, oh yeah, orange marmalade, coconut, or, you know, pineapple, whatever I want to say. But yeah. if I'm talking to somebody who is not, who isn't a coffee person, I'm not going to say that stuff because I, in the end, we're just setting them up to feel uh, ignorant and, and mm -hmm. like, oh, well, this is above me. My palate can't handle this or I, I did it wrong. And I think that's the last thing we should be doing as coffee professionals is setting people up to make them feel like they not only invested in their product, but then they did it wrong. So they just wasted money on top of that. So it, it's like, it's like mm -hmm. a double blow to not only their ego, but to their wallets also, you know? Yeah, totally. Um, I, I think we're, so we, I, I want to be conscious of, uh, everyone's time here. We are kind of approaching, uh, the end of what we uh the, the link that we're trying to get to um mm -hmm. i think there's a couple more more things that i'd like to hear from you one of them i always like to ask what what advice would you give to a younger coffee professional that is is trying to get involved in green coffee sourcing focus on coffee like be a student of coffee i guess is what i'm saying and always be willing to to uh yeah, approaching it with humility and always being willing to assume the coffee knows more than you. And I think if you approach it in that way and assume that the coffee can always teach you something, I feel like you'll, you'll, you'll end up in a good spot. You know, it, it may take you a little bit longer to get into buying or even you know, to wherever you want to be a trainer, uh, a fully, a fully trained barista, uh, a lab manager, but I do feel like in the end, if, if you treat the coffee with respect, I feel like uh, you'll go very far. Very good. And lastly, if anybody has questions for you, uh, how could they get in touch with you? Uh, I mean, I'm not very active on Instagram, but I would say there, yeah, at Samuel Sabori. And uh, yeah, I would say there. Very good. Awesome. Well, Thank you so much, Sam. It's great to talk to you. 
uh, I'd say intelligentsia is such uh, a huge role model for I think a lot of a lot of us other roasters out there. So uh, we appreciate the work that you do and, and keep it up. Thanks, guys. Yeah, it's a great time. Thanks for having me.